Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Air podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, I am extremely excited to be speaking to our first sustainable furniture maker, the amazing Sebastian Cox. Having just bought our first home, I've been thinking a lot about the impact of what we put into our houses, the unsustainable deforestation, carbon footprints, and waste that comes from so much of the furniture we buy. So today's episode feels very close to me right now. Sebastian is a furniture designer, craftsman, and environmentalist who is working with British Woodlands. Creating furniture from locally sourced wood has allowed Sebastian Cox to make his company and his employees carbon negative. Last year, Cox stored 100 tons of carbon dioxide in timber products such as furniture, kitchens, and tree houses. Now, he's on track to smash this record in 2021. According to Sebastian, the design community should be leading the material world into an intense period of regreening and cooling our planet, and it should start by finding ways to make the excess carbon we have in our skies a resource to be used to regenerate our Earth. Sebastian sees design as a way to save the world, and his manifesto on how Britain can regenerate its woodlands through sustainable production, tree planting, and biodiversity building is truly quite something to read. I will ask him to cover a lot of these beliefs today, and I really can't wait to share this conversation with you all. Now, over to Sebastian. So thank you so much, Sebastian. I am very excited to talk about everything um, that we're going to cover today. And I always, I always actually start by asking my guests really just, you know, can you tell us a bit about where it all started? You know, where did you grow up? Was there um, an element of nature in your childhood? And like, what first drew you towards making a life that would sort of evolve or work with the environment rather than against it because I feel like so many of us have brought been brought up to not really embrace nature or really become environmentalists so I always find it really interesting to hear people's sort of like evolution towards that. Mm. Yeah well first of all thanks for having me it's lovely lovely to chat to you. Um, yeah I suppose I don't I didn't really sort of grow up with a very hippie-ish kind of environmentalist childhood um, although I did grow up around a lot of the natural world um, my dad was a farmer um uh then he and my mom started a business restoring medieval buildings so i think there was like a um a very uh, obvious uh well it became very obvious when i was in my late 20s that my childhood was basically set up to um create the person I am today you know that sort of thing when you sort of become a like a young adult and you think you're all independent and you know you're your own person and then suddenly you realize you're just an image of the the environment your parents created for you um which is which is a nice thing and um so yeah they they did that and I grew up in the countryside very rural upbringing and for me it was kind of like um I remember being away at uni and uh doing some traveling before then as well and kind of becoming conscious of the fact that I was buying things for myself so like you know buying my own food buying my own clothes and I became very conscious of that having an impact and then I also had this realization like I wanted to make things in my life I wanted to go away and do furniture design and uh, and then I had this realization that um you know I was embarking on a career making more stuff in a world that was already full of stuff so how did I want to justify that and that kind of really led me to thinking about 
you know, how to become a designer um, in the most benign way effectively. So the, the whole journey, I suppose, was predetermined, although I didn't know it at the time, by a kind of a, a very um, outdoorsy childhood full of making things and um, repairing things and you know I guess like be growing up kind of on a farm even though it was a very very small and sort of like not really particularly operational farm it was kind of like the nature of that sort of work is that you're repairing things all the time you're just fixing mending and making if you're a farmer that's what you spend a lot of time doing mm -hmm. so um there was a lot of that in my childhood a lot of playing in woodlands and then yeah that kind of influenced me growing up and then I remember at uni I was um driving that's it in second year they they said oh you can you can go out and source your own material we'll go to the timber yard we'll take you and um i we drove past the lincolnshire line through the lincolnshire line woods i went to lincoln uni and drove past acres and acres of woodland and arrived at a timber yard which only sold imported stock only sold imported wood and i was like okay what <laughs> that's really weird and i said you know where's where's the wood from lincolnshire like is there any local and they said, no, it's all imported. And then I sort of started to scratch the surface and realised that there's this, you know, statistic, which is that 90% of the wood consumed in the UK uh, is imported. And the only country in the world that imports more wood than us is China. And that's not per capita, that's by volume, right? So we import more wood than the United States, than any other European country. We're so reliant on imports and we've got almost no... Um, Almost, you know 10 10% of what we use comes from here so I thought wow that's kind of a massive problem that no one's really talking about and I'd love to find a design solution to resolve that so yeah that's how I ended up in business that is like that's actually really shocking and why because actually that is the first time that I've heard that I knew that the UK imported a tremendous amount of wood but 90% and more than any other country and, and Britain's small, you know, it's a very small country in comparison to, to China, to the United States. Um, why is that Sebastian? Like why 90% is imported? Is that because there's just no wood left here to, to use, or is that because demand is so high or what, what is it? There's a number of factors that come into it. I think demand is high. So we love wood, which is great. That's a good thing. Um, I, you know, after there's a lot of, the second world war has a lot to answer with this you know there was like a, a you know a lot of wood was consumed then and there was a great rebuild um and it's basically a lack of management of our woods since then um and um also kind of i guess perhaps perhaps hangovers from colonial um colonial past i i i I'm, i don't i don't have any evidence of that but that's sort of a personal suspicion that I have which is that when you look at sort of brown furniture antique furniture you know 20s 30s late Victorian it's all like what is it mahogany teak uh satin wood all of these timbers that don't grow here it's very rare that you look at a piece of antique furniture and go oh yeah that's some nice that's some nice ash or that's a nice elm desk you know occasionally you see walnut veneer so I think that we just kind of got used to pillaging other people's forests and um perhaps didn't really set that up as part of our material culture um, you know, there's also like, there are really abundant resources, which, you know, forest sources, which we can use, which are, you know, relatively easy to use, like, you know, Scandinavia for building materials and so forth. But I think we've just always like, 
I think we've just always done it. We've just sort of got got into that habit and and um, not really not really um, sort of developed that ability to do it for ourselves. I think um, also the other factor is that you say, you know, we, we don't have masses of woodland here. We're 13% woodland cover, which is low for Europe. Um, some countries are sort of, you know, way above 35%. Uh, most, you know, many countries are. So, so we are low in woodland cover, forest cover. Um, and we're a small island. So I guess, you know, we're dense, relatively densely populated. So if there's a number of factors that come into it, but I still think we could do better than 90%, you know, and I think we have done better in the past. And um, what is coupled with this is this, so this is fantastic st statistic, not fantastic, it's a terrible statistic, but it's fantastically telling, which is that since the Second World War, woodland cover in the UK has increased, but biodiversity within woodland has decreased. So there's this kind of bizarre thing, which is about saying well, it's not just about having more trees. It's actually about how you manage them and how you use that land. So it's not just that we don't have the woodlands. It's that we're not managing them and we're not harvesting the wood from there. And part of that is down to, you know, if you want to grow, if you want to grow, a, a, you know, a woodland full of forestry product, you know, good quality timber, you need to invest in, you know, trimming the limbs and keeping them nice and straight and all those sorts of things, which they do excellently just over the channel in France. You know, they're really famous for good quality timber, which we just don't do here. Um, and by not having managed woodlands, we have low biodiversity too. So it's a double-headed problem, which would basically be solved if we used more domestic product because we'd be putting money into woodlands, which would therefore, um, you know, uh, increase the management of them um, and therefore increase the biodiversity of them. So it's a, it's a really interesting sort of double-headed problem. And the thing that I sort of really try to tackle uh, within a lot of the stuff that I sort of talk about is the idea of a chainsaw, the sound of a chainsaw in a British woodland shouldn't ring alarm bells you should be going oh my god that's great that woodland's being managed mm. um, and that's good for biodiversity yeah and we're going to get into biodiversity and i'm really excited because we're going to go kind of deep into your manifesto which includes a lot of this stuff but i just kind of want to quickly ask i've had a couple of guests on recently talking about the amazon rainforest um and a lot of like issues that we've got around you know, as you mentioned, these colonial mindsets that still very much exist where we're just like, we're going to cut down trees in another part of the world and we're going to bring them here and we're going to do that, you know, because I, I think about that a lot. Like if you go into an Ikea, like the, it begs the question, like where does all of this resource come from and how is it so cheap? Like somebody's paying a price somewhere. And in this case, to me, it would seem to be the environment. But where are we importing all of this wood from this 90% of the wood and like you know without asking you to like give us a really technical answer which you might not know but do you have a feel of where these things are coming from and whether they're coming from managed forests or like I guess my question is is importing wood always bad is some worse than others are there things people should just look out for when it comes to imported wood that are the real like red flags of like, you know, don't support this as an industry. Yeah, uh, I mean, really good question. As you as you allude to, very big detailed technical question as well. So the thing to say, I think first and foremost is that actually importing wood isn't bad per se, right? Because generally it comes by sea, which is pretty good. It comes slowly. Wood is a slow burn, you know, it's like, it's not an easy, that's part of the problem that we have is that we can't just turn it around like you could with your cropland, you know, you're talking 150 years before you see your product. So, and we're always going to re rely on some degree of imports. Um, and the great thing about wood is it's 
we can get into this later, but by being solid carbon dioxide, when that product arrives at the port in the UK, if it's come from the eastern states of the US, it will still be carbon negative by the time it gets here, right? So we're not comparing this with like uh, dwarf beans grown in Kenya, which are air freighted. You know, there are like, there are degrees of problematic, um, problematic importing. Um, where are we getting it from? So like a lot of our structural timber, like ply and things like that might come from um, Scandinavia, well-managed uh, forests. Um, certification does play a role in keeping, uh, keeping down um, any degree of kind of really problematic forestry um uh like like fsc pefc all of those things and there's this um european legislation around you know uh timber traceability i think the eutr means that you can't bring anything into europe which isn't um certified and the other point to make here is that um the timber industry doesn't drive deforestation so perhaps it has in the past but these days it is the conversion of forest to our agricultural land that drives deforestation and the trees are byproduct so if we're talking about if we're talking about the Amazon, um, our consumption of wood here isn't driving that. Our consumption of dairy, beef, soy, etc., will be. Um, so in many ways, it's not that the that the importing of wood is, you know, systematically really, really problematic. It's more about what we're doing to our own land here by not using what we have. Mm. And, and also the kind of the, the illogical side of that the fact that we do grow land and yet we're you know importing and and although i've mentioned certification you know there are still problems with that and there are still holes in that and and truly we don't know but and for me you know truly we, we don't know that the you know that the certification is 100 percent watertight you know there could be problems with imports um for me the main thing is like i always think and i do i write this in the manifesto that like i i really really believe that you are you're a better consumer if you're also a producer, right? If you if you're if you grow stuff in your garden, you'll understand more about the production of vegetables, right? So, as a maker, I'm acutely aware of how much material goes into things. You become interested in the other materials in things, and so I really believe that that then scales to a national scale. Where if we're just a, a nation of import consumers we have lost touch with every part of our lives and the sources of the things around us. And that's the biggest problem to me because ultimately these things are about consumer attitude, aren't they? All of the problems in the world come down to how much we're consuming. But well, I say not all, but you know, many of the environmental problems we face are how much are we consuming? And I think if we were a nation of producers, i.e. foresters, you know, growers and all of that kind of stuff and took more responsibility for, you know, um, producing what we actually wish to consume, I think we would have a much better attitude and I think that the, the developed world would be a better place. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love that. You're a better consumer if you're a producer. I mean, it's it's such a, a simple and yet brilliant sort of thought process. So, so thank you um, for that little nugget of wisdom. But now you've mentioned, and I've mentioned this business manifesto of yours a couple of times, and you know, you're incredibly kind to send it to me. And I, I wish that a lot of companies had something similar, but you know, I just wanted to read out a quote from the introduction um, where you say, we ask challenging questions and make things that encourage change. Our priorities are three pressing subjects, the decline of biodiversity, climate breakdown, and our wasteful material culture. If the first two remain unresolved, they threaten the existence of all life on this planet, including our species. 
So, you know, that's a pretty grand statement and one that I actually could not agree with more, but I'd love for you to speak a little bit. You know, we talk a lot on the podcast about food, about fashion, about all of these things, but given that you're my first guest within, you know, the furniture and home space, I'd love to ask you a little bit about how the home industry really impacts these arenas of unsustainable production and how you feel that relates to what you're doing with Sebastian Cox Furniture and why your company is tackling these these three things that are truly you know the pillars of of our unsustainable world that we live in right now mm-hmm. well um i guess the so i'll what i'll probably do is quickly glance over the first two points which is around um carbon sequestration and biodiversity loss um you know it's 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 a so it's it's obvious to me but i will make it very very clear wood is the greatest material on the planet it is a super material because it is made of solid carbon dioxide so the concept is that if you take a tree in a well-managed woodland and you harvest that tree you store the carbon that's held in that tree in a built in the built environment somewhere so you prevent it from rotting and that could be in a piece of furniture that could be in the structure of a building meanwhile in the woodland more wood is growing in the space that was left by that tree that's been harvested so you get a double carbon score where effectively you're soaking up carbon and storing it at the same time Um, and that's a really great way of increasing the amount of carbon that we can suck out of the atmosphere without increasing the amount of land needed so that's number one that's it's like it's so magic and we're about to enter this incredibly exciting age in architecture where we're now building mass timber buildings so so buildings that are made of enormous volumes of wood um, which can become massive carbon stores. Actually, so sorry, Sebastian, can I just jump in really quickly and not to get you to lose your train of thought, but I'm just thinking so much like my brother-in-law is actually a builder. And when he came to Maine for our wedding, he was, he's a builder here in, in England, down in Devon. And he was like really blown away by the fact that everything was made with wood because so much of the buildings in England are made with, I'm assuming like concrete or brick or some form of stone. And is that a is that a less just given that like so many structures in England are built with these materials, mm-hmm. is that a less sustainable way to be building than just using wood? Because I actually always think about that, but I'm like, oh, but we're cutting down trees to get all this wood for these houses. But then I know, you know, I was reading an article about the unsustainability of concrete, and it like blew my mind how mm-hmm. bad concrete was for the environment. So, just really quickly, whilst you're talking about that structurally, what's the difference between building with, yes. with those materials and wood yeah i mean it's a it's a really great question so yeah that's an obvious thing isn't it like oh well maybe we shouldn't be building in wood because it feels like uh, you know we're, we're we're felling forests to build but actually um yeah if you look at the alternatives which is basically cement and steel um which is what most things are made of these days particularly in terms of when we're talking like mid-rise blocks you know um yeah cement if it was a i think if it was a if the cement industry was a was a nation, its carbon footprint would be, I think it's, uh, it would be China, America, then cement. So it's bigger than Europe um, in terms of emissions. Um, it's enormously heavy. I mean, it's been an amazing material over the last kind of century. And, and you know, there, it will be remembered as being something which was relevant to our last century. But I think it is now no longer relevant because we we understand these impacts. It is incredibly energy intensive to produce it. Um, it's incredibly heavy to move around. And 
Um, when you compare that with the opportunities to build mid-rise blocks in cross-laminated wood, so there's this structure called CLT, which is where you take layers of wood, a bit like plywood, where you lay them in alternate directions, but instead of being thin veneers, they're like inch thick boards, so they really, really make up these quite thick walls, panels of like, you know, 200 millimetres. You can, you can literally bolt those together and you can build really strong mid-rise blocks from that, and it's not just that the you know, the emissions are removed from the concrete, but also, as I've said, you're storing the carbon in that tower block. And also the deliveries to site are like 80% less. So the actual road transport to move the stuff around is much less. So it's like win-win in every direction. And additionally, it's actually becoming cheaper as well. So it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to use this material. So it's, it's gonna be the case that, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, you're gonna start seeing this really, really frequently. Um, this podcast, we look, where are we, October now, if anyone can head to Rivington Street in East London, who's listening, <laughs> you will see this amazing five-story building designed by War Thistleton Architects, it, it's um, an office company called The Office Group, and it's at a great stage right now, and will be for a sort of month or so, where you're looking at a five-story building among brick and concrete towers, which is going to be an office, and it's this beacon of white wood, cross-laminated wood. It is absolutely amazing, and it looks exactly like that sort of like platform, you know, level where 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 once the concrete's poured, you know, typically you get that kind of thing, and that really sort of clear, you know, structural aesthetic. Um, so go and have a look at that if if the timings work. And um, but if not, then you'll see these sorts of buildings emerging in the landscape, and it's like this incredible. Um, alternative. I hear in, in Canada they're really pushing this and I believe there's a 40-story building which is going to be built from entirely CLT. Definitely. So the, 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 the technology is there and it is, it is, it is game-changing. It really is game-changing for the construction industry because in terms of emissions, construction is massive. You know, it is really, really big. Yeah. Um, and I imagine, you know, in Maine, you know, that, that's, that the vernacular is building in wood there. Here we we um, used a lot of stone, slate, and brick in the Victorian times. So we do maybe have this hangover towards more like heavy materials, um, but I think that's going to change really quick because often what drives these things is price, and CLT you know is coming down in price. Um, that's, that's brilliant, and also I love I love when I can get like bits of good news on the podcast <laughs> for that one, and then. Yeah. And I'm sorry because I did interrupt, like, interrupt you in the middle of you know kind of going into these different facets but you know I think we were going to move on to also the climate breakdown yeah. and you know actually I think what you just spoke about speaks a little bit to that but maybe even going a step further with how you how you see the home industry impacting yeah so I um, mean so there was climate then biodiversity you know I've talked about the importance of managing woodlands and the only way that's going to happen is if we create commercial demand to manage woodlands I don't believe that it should be a government responsibility to effectively create like government sponsored conservation areas just so we can have thriving woodlands you know thriving woodlands can happen through commercial demand and that's what we're showing with our business so um that's sort of yeah uh, i would say uh, you know address that point and the final thing is the kind of the waste that we have in our material culture like i think it's um you know it's 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 the it's the lesser of the three kind of you know because it doesn't you know really like rationally putting stuff in landfill it's you know it's not threatening our species it's just not sensible behavior you know it's just really really stupid so um what can we do to change that um what we do is we we make things with the intention that they will last a very very long time that comes down to not just how they're made but also how they're designed you know we try to 
move away from these sort of short-term trend-led cycles, which you're starting to see in furniture or have started to see over the last five years in the furniture and product industry, where it's almost becoming like fashion, where they have like spring, summer, autumn, winter launches. And it really like, turn, like yeah, makes my blood boil um, that, that that's sort of moving into the space that we're at. Um, so we really reject that kind of short-termism and trend-led uh, sort of design. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of the big things that we can have a go at sort of tackling and, and listeners are probably wondering, well, how does some furniture make a difference there? Like it's, um, which is a perfectly valid kind of question. Um, we, obviously what we, what we make and produce can be part of the solution to all of these things. If it's, if it's designed from the, from the very, very origins of the resource right through to the, the product um, itself and how that arrives in the customer's home. And whilst, you know, the, clearly for carbon, the big opportunity is in building, actually, um, I think that things are almost always most powerful when they're at human scale, because as I said at the beginning, really believe that half, the, well, most of the battle here is about changing hearts and minds of citizens and consumers. And furniture is fantastically human scale. You know, it's stuff that we live around all the time. We have it in our homes and, um, and uh, you know, it's there to touch, to feel, to, to experience. So it does have a role to kind of change those attitudes and um, ask those questions. And, you know, if you're sat around a table, which has a really interesting story, that's a great way of like, you know, bringing other people into that sphere. I think it almost has that like tangibility that food has, you know, how food has just become this amazing conversation, uh, conversation caveat, you know, um, conduit around, um, you know, sustainability. Um, furniture sort of sits on that kind of level for me. Yeah, it's so true. And we're going to actually touch upon food, but, you know, I want to, because it, it's interesting how that came up so much in terms of your manifesto and, and sustainability issues. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I just recorded with Charles Dowding, which I'm excited he's going to come out after you actually. But um, for everybody who doesn't know, he's sort of a, a pioneer in the organic farming movement here in the UK. And one of the huge things he talks about that you're speaking about so eloquently is this lack of biodiversity. And I think to really drum it home to people, especially because we've such, got such a large like British audience here, I just want to pull out quickly another fact from your manifesto, which was that we are in the sixth period of mass extinction with the number of wild animals on earth falling by 60% in the last 40 years alone. And with 1 million species now threatened with extinction due to human activities, you know, and I, I wanna speak about this in the context of England, but you know, this is such a huge issue. The New York Times just did a really stunningly like beautiful and heartbreaking piece on a few like endangered species that we lost this year. And it really brought home to me just how insanely responsible we are for this and, and that it's happening before our very own eyes when we literally have all the ways of fixing this in front of us, we're just not doing it. So, I, but I think a huge thing is that we, we oftentimes don't stop to think about how we got here. Like, how are we in, you know, the sixth period of mass extinction? How are we losing a million species? Like, in 2021, when all of us have, you know, iPhones and, and every resource available to us almost at any time, you know, how did we get to this point? And maybe you can speak about this specifically in the UK, because I know this is where you're the most, you know, knowledgeable and passionate, but how has Britain allowed this sort of 
degradation of its natural world to happen. Mm. Yeah, so I think, um, uh, again, <laughs> I love this podcast. These questions are so huge. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm a really, like, my that. husband always says, he's like, you're, like, such a big picture person. <laughs> no, so I, you don't have to, like, answer this huge, but I mean, like, no, no, I can. I'll have a go. I'll have a go. Thank you. So, so I think I think the thing to recognise is um, is that those uh, statistics around you know the sixth period of mass extinction is a global statistic, and I think that people in the UK, I'm not sure about elsewhere, but I I suspect it's similar. Sort of think, oh yeah, that's like happening over there. That's like orangutans, you know, and palm oil, isn't it? which they are responsible for, but it feels elsewhere. But what I find really interesting is that the other statistic within that introductory bit, which is that Britain is the most, is by one measure, one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, right? So if there was this study done, which is basically like, what what is the biodiversity level that should be present and what is it now? And then that gives you a factor between where you should be and where you are. And Britain scores among the lowest um on that scale of any country in the world right so it's really serious and how did we get there um in in short probably overconsumption of food would be the sort of quickest way overconsumption of um uh, land intensive food and and this does all come down to land um we can talk about how we use it in terms of organic farming or you know um uh you know plant first plant-based diets um but ultimately yeah it comes down to land and and um basically when you farm you deprive you deprive creatures of habitat so the more you farm the more of your land you convert um then uh you know uh, the, the the less habitat there is available and what's specific about the uk is because we've kind of cultured this landscape over the last two thousand years no one really remembers what it was like before we started doing that um and I think that's where people are really surprised so when we talk about the Amazon rainforest I wrote an article know, a year ago or so about how you know it's whilst we should be appalled at what's happening in South America um you know we need to also recognize that that happened here so all of the downland hills which you see covered in sheep um were probably scrubby woodland they didn't look like that and so we sort of did this age of deforestation or removal of scrub and heathland um here and uh, we think that like close clipped pastures that roll over hill after hill after hill with no trees, maybe we've got dry stone walls in some areas, you know, like I, I grew up in South, so I'm quite used to hedges, but you know, when I got up into the North of England and it's like, there's no hedges and it's just walls. It's like, wow, you know, this is, this is really, we're looking at very, very treeless landscapes. Um, and it's really important that we recognize that we learn to see um what could and would have been there in terms of scrub i'm not saying that it was all high forest but in terms of like heathland and scrub um you know it would have been very different and of course when you remove that di diversity of vegetation you end up with diverse like lower diversity of invertebrates and, and birds and, and and so forth so um it sort of all stems from intensive usage of land effectively and the kind of sterilization of land that agricultural brings, even if it's in its most organic and natural forms, you're still taking an area that would have had, you know, we talk about like structural vegetation, structural diversity within vegetation, where you have like high trees, low scrubs and thorns, wildflowers, which are also known as, as weeds to us, modern people. You know, you're talking about all of this stuff is just reduced to a field and then some hedges and, 
um, it's, you know, and, and that obviously massively decreases the biodiversity. And it's the scale at which we do that. So in the UK, 72% of our land is dedicated to farming, right? So 72% of this small island is farmed in one way or another. 13% is forest um, and the rest sort of falls into other categories. But um, yeah, so when we're talking about like, you know, when people get very upset about building and the built environment and roads, that's like 1% of the UK. So, you know, that's not really what's destroying wildlife here. I mean, it is, you know, obviously creating corridors of like where wildlife can't pass and those sorts of problems. Um, and concrete has other issues in terms of climate change, but really what it is, is it's, it's the land use, that, that, that vast areas which are dedicated to permanent pasture for sheep and cattle, dairy and so forth in those intensive management systems that we have today. So, you know, and I, I agree with you, Sebastian, but I think that a lot of people who might listen might say, well, you know, but also it's a good thing that we are producing our own food here in the UK and, you know, especially in this sort of post-Brexit world, we need to be able to provide for the people of the UK by having our, you know, our own food sources here. What would you sort of say to that argument that we absolutely have to have this huge chunk of land be dedicated to farming? Um, it's, I would completely agree with that. And I do advocate that we, you know, grow as much here as we can, but it's about the, ratios of land intensity of the foods that we're eating. Mm -hmm. So um, for example, you know, I think it's, you know, the vegan argument recently, and I'm not a vegan by the way, but that argument has put um, a lot of very convincing cases for how we need to sort of change, you know, our diets. And one of the most convincing to me is the land intensity of animals. So um, it's less, it's just about, you know, eating well, eating less, um and just cutting waste so um i think 30 percent of all of the food that's grown in europe um doesn't even make it to a plate um you know and then there's waste within the home on top of that as well so i, I i'll have to check my facts and figures here i'm pretty sure i read in wilding by isabella tree um i think it's only one third actually makes it to the plate so you know when you're talking about the amount of waste that's already in that system mm. um then it's hardly a surprise that you know it wouldn't be that difficult to uh, decrease the intensity um, with which we're using that land. Yeah. So it's not that they, I don't believe that they are conflicting issues in terms of like, oh, we need to grow stuff here um, or we need to make room for wildlife here. I actually think that they, they, there, are, there is some conflict, but I think that the big conflict is around waste. Yeah. And it's interesting. I remember, I can't remember which sort of documentary it was, but I remember when I was trying to first get my husband to eat, not again, we're not, we're not vegan. I'm vegetarian. He eats very little meat now, but why he did that was because there was this great, oh God, was it like forks over knives? It was something like that. It was one of these, you know, great documentaries that have really like eye opened for a lot of people, but it was like, showing the square footage that you need to like grow vegetables and it was teeny and then it was like chickens also pretty small and then you know you got into like lamb and pork and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then you get into cows and it's like eight times the amount of land you know to sustain yourself using those sort of resources so I think it, you're you're exactly right it's just we can have made in Britain, we can have, you know, grown in Britain, we can do all of these things, we just have to have less of these really like meat intensive, dairy intensive 
you know, diets. Um, so, so thank you for sort of, you know, outlining that. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you, what we, you know, we're both agreeing there. And I think that that's absolutely true. I think it's important to highlight that it's, it is also a very nuanced argument because I do advocate some animal products within, you know, our diets because, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, the animals are an excellent producer of fertility uh, in terms of like, you know, soil fertility. So manure is a really, really great way of fertilizing crops. And what I don't advocate is a plant based system where we just use chemical fertilizers because those are incredibly environmentally damaging too. So you can have like small mixed farm systems, which are highly sustainable and you can have a bit of pork and a bit of lamb and a bit of beef. But it's just the it is just the degree and the intensity with which we're doing it, you know, and even just like little things like, um, you know, I don't, it's difficult to sort of do examples without feeling like you're having a go at specific areas. But like it, small things like when my dad was farming, you know, um, you'd maybe get get a hay crop in the summer. But now we've got this system of silage where you'll expect three cuts of grass from one area of grassland to feed your cattle during the winter uh, in a year. Right. And when you just had a hay crop, what that meant was like it meant that like skylarks could get their nesting done in the early spring and then the hay would be cut in the summer and the skylarks would be you know which are which are a threatened species in the uk so skylarks would have their time to breed and then um you know then the grass would be cut we're now cutting three times a year so the first cut starts in kind of like late april early may because we're fertilizing the grass in to order to make it grow quicker for more 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 and that means that we're mowing effectively straight through skylarks breeding season and then we do it again a few weeks later when the grass is growing again and then we do a third time in the summer so the chance of a skylark which is a bird that nests in grassland of being able to reproduce is just decimated by this modern system that we have so it's just it's little changes like that which we maybe aren't aware of but like basically if you buy um i mean even organic milk you know this cat you know these the systems are used within those sorts of things so it can be highly problematic so if you it, you know there are there are great ways of avoiding this by you know looking for labels like pasture for life which basically means that they're you know they're only fed um you know pasture um and you know it's, you just think about it like the logic of having grass that's just grazed by cattle mm -hmm. is obviously much better than having this sort of system of silage and intensive feeding so um i when i buy beef and we can expand on this a bit more in a minute um i buy from farms where they actually are outdoors all year round um which again you know is so much better for biodiversity so um, these hardy breeds of cattle um, are out, out, out on the landscape in the uplands of Cumbria um, all year round. And, and one of the obvious things about that is like we all of our dung beetles in the UK are threatened, basically threatened species. There's something like I think 19 species of dung beetle, maybe 20. And um, if you don't have dung present on the land, there is obviously nothing for a dung beetle to, to, to eat. So if we have dairy and beef systems where you put them in a barn for the winter, the dung beetles are deprived of that dung resource. So just little things like switching to outdoor all year round where you need these old hardy breeds of cattle, um, you know, which do produce less beef per animal, but ultimately they require less supplementary feed, they require less worming. So it's just stepping back a bit, like stepping back maybe 80, 100 years in terms of looking at how we farmed then. Mm -hmm. And you can take this kind of, you know, cause we all need to produce food, but it's just how it's done and the degree of intensity with which it's done. And there are loads and loads of examples where if you just step back from the degree of intensity with which we're doing it now, you can still produce food and you can do it in much more benign ways. Yeah, it's so true. And then I think, you know, that leads me really well onto, you know, my my sort of like, I think that leads really interestingly into this idea of how you guys make 
furniture and how you manage your wood resource. So just like, you know, at the very, like, you know, the very basic elements, like how do you guys go about sourcing your wood locally? How do you do it in the most sustainable way possible? And how are you doing it in accordance with those sort of three concerns that you've got, which are, you know, biodiversity loss, climate destruction, and, and this issue of waste, which I mean, if I'm honest, you know, I have bought pieces of furniture from Ikea before a long time ago, like when I was a college student, but I mean, like, literally, I, I, I believe that some of that stuff lasted me maybe a year and a half and I ended up throwing it out. I mean, it wasn't even resellable. It was so bad. So how do you guys at Sebastian Cox, how are you taking sort of like nuanced approaches to this to, to produce furniture in like such a different way? Mm. So, um, we, we, we basically our, our, our guiding principle is that we only use British wood. So that's the sort of thing that like underpins whatever, whatever it is. And, and actually like, you know, the design of it, what it is, all of the, you know, whether it's a cabinet or a tree house, all of those questions are very, very secondary. And I'm much less interested in those than I am. Is it, can it be made of solid British wood? Um, so we don't use veneers as well, which is a, I'll come on to that. Um, we operate, we try to operate at kind of a national scale. So I'm not like, we don't try and say, oh yeah, we only get this wood from within 20 miles of our workshop and have that kind of super provenance because I'm actually interested in how we can build um, systems that work nationally. So, you know, I, I like the idea of the scalability of the concept of our business. Um, I like the idea that um, actually we could have the, the you know, this, this sort of like ability to stand on our own two feet as a nation in terms of timber use in furniture, at least, let's say. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we sort of, we, we, we work with family run timber yards, which is small businesses. There are not many left, really. Most timber yards in the UK will be in traders of imported commodities. They're timber merchants rather than sawmills. But there are a handful who genuinely saw source and then saw their own logs. And we work with those guys. Um, we also have our own sawmill. So some of what we use, we will have milled either the client's own tree. Like, let's say we've got a client who's got a house and there's, you know, some trees in the, in the garden and a couple of them are coming down, blow over or whatever it is. We can use that timber, which is excellent. And that sort of gives us a... Um, a kind of a, an insight into the rest of the industry through actually doing it ourselves. And so, you know, one of the things that makes us kind of different is that we are sawmillers as well. So we're sawyers. Um, and then we also have a woodland in Kent, which we manage for uh, biodiversity first and then furniture second. So there's the, this sort of like, we're trying to invert that idea that you just walk into a woodland and say, well, I need all of the cherry or whatever it is, fell all of that and then walk away. We actually manage it during the winter uh, thinking about biodiversity, our, our, our woodland management plan is entirely geared around boosting the biodiversity of the site. And then we look at what we've cut at the end of the season. I mean, really, we know what we're going to cut before the season starts. But, you know, the concept is we look at it at the end of the season and we say, OK, so what furniture can we make with this? And so we're completely inverting that sort of like way that we think about resources, the way that we think about how we're going to extract things. Um, and so the woodland, whilst it's very small and doesn't provide it probably only does like five or 10% of the wood that we actually use. It gives us a sort of a, a proxy understanding of how the rest of the country, you know, uh, could work in terms of woodland resource. And does that, so would that impact your growth, Sebastian? So like if you guys are looking at only looking for using British wood and you're only looking to use a small amount of the woodland that you're managing personally, like 
does that mean that Sebastian Cox Furniture is always going to have to be a somewhat small business? Or do you think that with consumer demand, it would allow you to actually increase the amount of woodland that you're, you're, you, you know, how does that work in terms of like, is it prohibitive or is it actually something that could grow alongside the business in terms of keeping it this sustainable? Yeah, it's a really, really great question and something that I grapple with often. Um, I mean, I, I like to I like to think of our businesses entirely scalable. Um, um, I think that there would come a point where, you know, you'd re- start to reach capacity of what was growing out of the, the woodlands here. But I think that also comes down to how you perceive the quality of the timber. Um, so, you know, if you want, if you design, so like our, so that's where I think our business is scalable because, you know, we are quite happy to look at using small branch wood to make desks with. And therefore we're not asking for like the big premium prime oak. We very, very rarely specify that. We're always going for like the most abundant, low grade, kind of knotty, not straight stuff. That's kind of the way we work. This, the, the barriers to scalability then are, you know, things like cost and, you know, production and stuff like that. But I, I would love to be, yeah, I'd love to be, you know, of a, like, I don't know, what, what would we say? 250 employees in a great big workshop, producing loads of work for, you know, people to have in their homes throughout the UK. The barrier to that is always going to be that, and we've mentioned IKEA a lot here, um, who, by the way, have improved, you know, the sustainability credentials in the last few years a lot. But, you know, whilst furniture that cheap always exists, um, we, we would just never be able to get near it um, and never be able to compete. Um, I personally think that that furniture is too cheap. And it's the same with the conversation around food. It's like, you know, as you alluded to earlier, who is bearing the cost there? Um, you know, and yeah, and should things, you know, is, is the idea of things being cheap always actually cheap, at, you know, just because it's cheap at the point of consumption um so yeah i i do believe that it could be scalable i like to operate in a way where i think you know yes um we are setting this up to to offer the idea that it could be scalable nationally and the way that we do that is we produce product as well as we do bespoke stuff but we're really about how do you design ranges of products which people can just buy you know off your website um that's sort of that's that's this scalable idea i think um but i think again you know it doesn't have to be just us you know doing that it could be like that there are lots of companies like us producing products made in the uk from british wood and that could be entirely scalable because that idea which is a bit like the answer to the food and farming problem is if you just have lots of small farms that's actually much more sustainable than one massive farm intensively managed yeah and i think that's you know i I, I, I'm sorry to go back to it because I know it's everybody's least favorite subject in sustainability. I know that I certainly grapple with it too, but the reality of the cost of producing things that are made to last, that will be done, you know, using sustainable resources made by well-paid people here in the UK. I mean, you cannot do that without a certain you know, cost attributed to it. And, you know, in, in your case, I know your furniture is a lot more expensive than Ikea, but like, how do you see, how do you see the responsibility of maybe the consumers that can afford, you know, like, I'm not saying that if you are a struggling mother of three who is just trying to get by, 
that this is your issue, that you need to be out there worrying about getting, you know, investment furniture made with British woodlands and yada, yada, yada. That is not your responsibility and it never, ever should be. But if you're somebody listening to this podcast who does have, let's say, you know, a good salary and you're buying expensive things anyway, like how does the cost, how does the cost come into it maybe in a way where, if more people were buying sustainable products and supporting British woodlands and showing interest in supporting, you know, British made British timber, like, would that bring the costs down for you guys? Would that make this something that was easier to implement? Like that's, I think the bigger question here. Yeah, actually I, I, you've, you've hit the nail on the head really that our, so I'm all ready to scale. Like I'm, I'm totally up for this. Our biggest barrier um to the idea of like scaling you know the you know the 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 product side of our business is is demand and um that's something that i'm working very hard to try and change through education but yeah no if if um if more people invested you know in if more people even thought about that question then you know then yes we would we would end up in a position where we could you know bring the cost down and so forth but you know i so like it's always really interesting i think to think about these things in like relative terms so the food one's interesting where i'm i you know talking to my nan about this stuff so she was um born just before the second world war and was a child during blitz and so forth and grew up in rationing afterwards and so when she became a household owner um in the kind of 50s and 60s it was her, her her you know mental attitude towards her income was a third a third a third so it was a um, a third for food, a third for rent, and a third for everything else of her income. Now it's something like, um, I think it's as small as 12% of your income is nationally typically spent on food. And then if you sort of like extrapolate that to like products and stuff, you, you, people, you know, the idea of a, of a like whatever, a 40 pound chair, um, it's such a small percentage of someone's monthly salary or annual salary that, um, really there could be more room made for that you know that, that you know there could be more room made actually 40 pounds quite expensive for a chair um in ikea i think but um it would be it would be premium but um you know more room could be made for that if there was less of the other stuff and i think the big thing that people don't talk about in this is this sphere which is a big big question is the cost of housing you know when we took when think about my nan's one third one third one third right food and rent being the same no way can we get near that these days. So actually the biggest barrier here is not the fact that, you know, food's too expensive or the products are too expensive. It's actually that like the cost of rent and mortgages um, is, is absolutely astronomical compared to what it has been in the past. So, but then that gets into a whole different, you know, kettle of fish around, um, you know, development, building and housing and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it is difficult, but these things have to be balanced. And, um, and I think that that's coupled with a sort of a general attitude, which is that, well, I shouldn't have to spend much on my, you know, the things in my home, because actually, um, you know, I've got all this other tech and other stuff that I probably don't need, you know, to spend my money on. And when you look at like, you know, the, the values, what some people might spend on like a pair of shoes or trainers or something, and actually what that brings to them versus, you know, something which is going to be a lifetime purchase, perhaps there is some skewed, um, uh, you know perceptions around product values which needs to be undone um so yeah it's a big and technical and complicated question um but it also has to be about like like you say you know if you can afford it you really need to think about what sort of world do you want to live in 
do you want to live in a world where your furniture is made in Vietnam by people that you've never met in a factory that you've not been to? Um, or do you want to live in a world where maybe the furniture maker is someone that you could go and visit and see it being made? And one of the things that I also find really interesting, I'm trying to sort of break down is this idea around, and I have worked with retailers, so I have to be a bit careful about not upsetting them, but I think they wouldn't be surprised that I'm saying this, which is that, you know, when we used to supply to retail, you know, sort of Tottenham Court Road retailers, um, I'd make a desk for £400 and they'd sell it for £1,600, right? Mm -hmm. So you're looking at a desk that's actually worth £400 being sold for £1,600 because they've got to pay for their, I'm like this company, you know, these companies and like furniture retailers are not like, you know, running away with the money. They're, they're paying for the bricks and mortar that they've invested in on Tottenham Court Road or wherever. Um, you know, so, but, but, but really where, where's the value in the product actually you know if it's a 400 pound desk it's a 400 pound desk to me mm. um so there's you know there's all sorts of questions around like cutting out the middlemen as well i think potentially or is a way of making things more affordable that's opened up a lot by social media and instagram things like that you know you can you can go on instagram and you can find i mean you, you struggle not to come across a potter you know um if you have certain algorithms pointing that way <laughs> Oh my um, god yes i have so many ceramicists coming yeah, up now it's like exactly. and this ceramic vase and this <laughs> yeah, ceramic vase yeah. and you're like oh god totally i know it's amazing isn't it um yeah. but doesn't that just show you you know like studio pottery was a thing that was very niche kind of interest you know and now it's like totally mainstream and that's wonderful and so we have these mechanisms for connecting people to the producers of stuff um i think they just need to yeah, I just think it needs that slight more questioning, like mm -hmm. what, where it, what, what values do I actually want to be tied up in the things that I'm buying? And people are working out with food, I think. Um, maybe we're a bit behind in the product world. Do you think people are working out in food? Yeah, I do. But I also think that, again, I think with, you know, everything working on an algorithm, that if you're someone that likes to eat organic Instagram knows that and so therefore like in my news feed god I'm getting so many like growers and things about regenerative agriculture etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know if you're somebody that likes a Big Mac and you know like eats a lot at a certain chain restaurant or something like equally you're then targeted to just keep eating that way so it's almost like um Yes, I do. But I'm also aware that sometimes I worry that, you know, it's not becoming mainstream quite fast enough. And I think it actually leads me to a really important question, which was my next question anyway. But what do you think the role of like tastemakers and influencers and magazine editors, like, you know, what's their role in this? Because I, that's something that I think is really important that we start, you know, asking questions of is what, what, what is the responsibility of people with loud creative visions that have a lot of influence to be promoting things that are made really well, you know, like for instance, like I know that there's like a huge design world out there, but for instance, I, I just see like, I don't know, it seemed like everything boucle this year was like you could not you cannot get on instagram and like look at certain home home accounts without seeing like boucle chair boucle puff boucle whatever and you know and and i just see so many influencers just pushing that further 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 i don't really know much about boucle and whether you can do it sustainably or if anyone is or whatever but 
it's just something that I noticed, like that I was like, God, you know, now influencers are getting into home stuff. And, and as we're moving to Maine and I'm planning on sharing a lot about like how Jamie and I are going to like sustainably renovate our house. I'm really aware of that. Like, I don't want to push something or like, I don't want to fall into this trap of doing up our house based off of like all of this stuff that's been given to me on Pinterest, because at the end of the day, you know, if you can influence people in any way, it might be just to, to remind them to like, you know, shut the Pinterest board and just think about your own personal style. But I guess with you guys, and I know that you have, you know, you do guest articles, you do work on magazines and things like that. Like, what do you think the role is here for people to help spread this message? I think much more than it, it currently is in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I just think that broadly as like, yeah, I suppose I suppose magazine editors and um, influencers do have uh, a certain degree of responsibility to make sure that you know that we're, we're we're putting these messages across. But I I also think that it comes down to you know I don't I don't want to dumb this down too much, and I don't I don't want to say that society can't work things out for itself. I think it's quite a dangerous kind of idea that we all have to be led. I I really believe that society needs to educate itself. I think that has to come from the individual um, as much as I, you know, believe in, you know, the advocacy and education that we try to do through the business. I really think that we've all got to be asking more about where things come from. And um, maybe, maybe I'm far too much of an optimistic, uh, optimistic person, but um, I do think that has to come from people. You know, we, we, we should be taking responsibility for educating ourselves around, around this stuff. And in the same way that we should be educating ourselves around what we put in our body, and all of these other you know things and just the notion that like um somehow you know the 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 you know the the, the corporate or, or or you know central government world needs to needs to lead on that i'm i'm i don't know I, I i do take my own responsibility very seriously and i think you know i want to educate people but and i would also say you know you know a lot of influencers out there you know maybe are pushing totally the wrong things but I think that um yeah I do think it has to come from the individual as well I think we need to take responsibility and not just say oh sustainability is too big a thing it's not really for me I don't really understand it it needs to be like you need to be really rigorous and thinking well so perhaps therefore the message is that we need to be just explaining to people quite how serious this is and that they they need to go away and look at all of this stuff and really think about it yeah well hundred percent. Um, all right. So my final question, because I like that you are an optimistic person and I like to end the podcast on an optimistic point, but I feel like something that I haven't brought up, which I think is phenomenal is that you have managed to make your business carbon negative, you and your employees. And that I read, you know, you did this in 2020 and you were kind of on track to do even better in 2021. And I think this is an amazing achievement for any company but especially a company that deals in you know solid furniture manufacturing manufacturing. yeah exactly so just as like you know this really like upbeat endpoint how have you managed to do this carbon negative and and you know what's what's the future looking like for you guys and being even Mm -hmm. better at it yeah well thank you I mean yeah no it's I mean something that I started taking an interest in um quite a few years ago was measuring carbon there there was this um, fantastic book called how bad are bananas by mike berners lee Uh, he's just written another one i think um another book in the last couple of years anyway i'm sure you've read it um yeah and um 
and it really got me thinking around you know oh my god okay this is really interesting and, and I thought well actually what we do is probably pretty measurable because you know we really we because we're really close to the source of our material right so we can know where it's come from distances traveled and so forth and because there's very little processing involved in wood like we're not boiling it we're not you know burning it melting it any of those things which you have to do with other materials i was like okay so that's quite easy just get cut the trees dry them get them to us and then from there it's literally like well how much electricity did we use to make that piece of furniture and then all right there's some other things like okay the screws and the glue but we can work that out approximately because they're really small parts of what we're doing so maybe that's not you know doesn't need to be like really really accurate and then it's the delivery to the customer's home and I was like, oh my God, we can measure that. Like, that's so easy. I can, I can, you know, I, I think the figure is uh, 0.454 kilograms of carbon dioxide as an average emitted for every kilowatt that we use on the national grid in the UK. And that's probably improved as like coal has decreased because this was a few years ago. So if we're working to a figure of 0.454 kilograms of CO2 emitted for every kilowatt, all we need to know is how many kilowatts did that piece of furniture consume in its manufacturing which is really easy because it was like well how long was the machine running for oh 10 minutes okay and and how many kilowatts does the machine consume oh it's a three kilowatt motor and you i basically just built this spreadsheet and i was like okay well this is amazing like we're finding out that actually our energy use is like relatively low like really if you look at the making of that table that's like emitted five kilograms of co2 and then i started learning about carbon sequestration which is this thing that we talked about at the beginning which is the notion that wood actually stores carbon and if we work on the principle that the trees in the forests that we're taking our wood from are regrowing then your furniture becomes a carbon store and then you can say well how much carbon is there in that piece of furniture and you say, oh my God, that dining table is storing 20 kilograms of CO2 and the emissions to make it were five. And I'm speaking like, you know, I can, you go on our website, you can see these figures on all of our products. Um, and then you're like, wow, so there's a 15 kilogram storage potential in that table. That's massively carbon negative. And then we started to think, well, who gets the benefit here? Like, do we pass that on to our customers or what do we do? Do we like cover our staffs? you know, transport to work, like how far do we want to take responsibility for the carbon within our organization? Um, and so, yeah, so we, we basically asked our staff, how much CO2 do you emit? So we gave them this table, they had to fill it out. What do they do? Where they go on holiday? What's their commute like? How much meat do they eat? And a lot of it's like, you know, approximations, like, you know, one to five, how much of a meat eater are you? Most people can answer that question. And then you sort of have approximations and scales and and um, yeah, basically, we can take responsibility for our staff's carbon emissions in their lives. So if you come and work for us, um, you're, a, you know, you, you, you can, uh, provided you don't like, you know, maybe have, um, you know, 10 flights a year to in Japan or whatever, um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you can come and work for us and we'll take responsibility for your emissions. So it was kind of, um, you know, largely self-calculated and done based on sort of loose figures and, you um, and it just, again, highlights what an amazing material wood is, because I'm really uncomfortable and uneasy with these sort of like offset systems where you basically just buy carbon, you mm -hmm. know, like loads of companies are doing that now, which is kind of a good thing because it's kind of creating a demand for, you know, mitigation. But I don't know, like uh, that's finite, isn't it? Because eventually, eventually we'll have used all the land possible. Like land is finite, right? So if land equals carbon credit, i.e. we're going to forest it then that sort of has a 
capacity on it and actually what we really should be doing is like looking and focusing on decreasing so we became more efficient in our production as well and we looked at different ways of like reducing our carbon impact um one of the things for example that we did and this again addresses the third point in our sort of manifesto around this idea of waste was um you know we we we, we were compressing our waste wood and then selling it as fuel which was a you know good and that was fine but then i spoke to the timber yard about how they were drying their wood and they were using red diesel in the kilns um and then we spoke to them and they said that they've been interested in doing a biomass conversion and what they what we do now is when the lorry delivers the wood to us from this one yard that we use most frequently we then load it up with all of our wood dust from the last month so they come once a month and then on the back run of the lorry it takes it back to the timber yard and the timber yard used that they converted their kilns to run on biomass mm. so they use our wood chip waste to fuel the drying of the wood so there's this wonderful circularity where now all of our and that's like when you look at if you're a furniture maker the volume of material that comes in and the volume of material that becomes your waste is like when you're working with wood it's quite high like you're talking of what comes in probably like 40 50 percent of it isn't you know is either planed away because it's the wood's not straight or cut off and then and then you have that sort of waste volume so we were able to close that loop in terms of our waste and also then offset the carbon of the fossil fuels that were being burned to dry the wood um all in one clear like thing and that's only really possible when you start to analyze and look at these things and start to ask those sort of searching questions so we've in in effectively like in reducing our carbon footprint we've also become a zero waste business because I think zero waste is termed anything under 5% and uh, our actual, like the physical amount of stuff that we actually put into a bin that doesn't go into recycling that really you can't do anything with is less than 2% in our business. So we've sort of like closed these loops everywhere just by like studying it, looking at it and trying to think about what more we can do. And um, yeah, I, I really do have an ambition to get that, um, you know, that idea down to zero. Like, do you know um, the restaurant Silo? Um, yeah, I went to him in Brighton, like when he first started, I was like so into it. I, I like literally went all the way down there and was like, I want to eat here. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And their, their whole thing is like, you know, the restaurant with no bin. And I kind of think we're not far off becoming the workshop with no bin. And I'd quite like to set that as like a target, you know, if we could get there. And I've already spoken to the team about it and they're really excited about the idea. So, which, you know, it, this again, this comes down and goes to my point before. It comes down to asking questions and educating yourself, which you need to take responsibility for yourself. Other people aren't going to do this for you. What are you doing? What are you producing? Ask the questions, find out, do the maths and then change it. And that's basically what we did. And um, yeah, we're really proud of it. Like, you know, it's uh, I mean, we're already like at an advantage because we're working with this super material. But, you know, you've got to work quite hard to sell stuff made of wood. So, you know, we, we've sort of made those opportunities for ourselves and, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're running with them to make sure that they're absolutely maximized. God, well, thank you so much, Sebastian. That is incredible. And actually, I didn't realize that about the waste element. And I, I think it's just like, I, I hope that, you know, there's a lot of things I hope people take from this episode, but genuinely just your passion for figuring things out, for realizing there's always a better way of doing things. Like literally, if we had more people like you, we wouldn't be in a climate crisis. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you for coming on to speak to me. No, thanks so much for having me. And it's been great to, you know, chat nothing but sustainability. Like <laughs> a lot of the podcasts end up on a design focused and we talk a bit about that, but this is great. Thank you.